Classic Pulp Entertainment, found only at ClassicPulp.com. Chapter 1 of First Lensman by E. E. Doc Smith The visitor, making his way unobserved through the crowded main laboratory of the hill, stepped up to within six feet of the back of a big Norwegian, seated at an electrono-optical bench. Drawing an automatic pistol, he shot the apparently unsuspecting scientist seven times, as fast as he could pull the trigger, twice through the brain, five times closely spaced through the spine. "'Ah, Garlane of Edor, I have been expecting you to look me up. Sit down.' Blonde, blue-eyed Dr. Nels Bergenholm, completely undisturbed by the passage of the stream of bullets through his head and body, turned and waved one huge hand at a stool beside his own. "'But those were not ordinary projectiles,' the visitor protested. Neither person, or rather entity, was in the least surprised that no one else had paid any attention to what had happened, but it was clear that the one was taken aback by the failure of his murderous attack. "'They should have volatized that form of flesh, should at least have blown you back to Aresia where you belong. "'Ordinary or extraordinary, what matter?' As you, in the guise of Grey Roger, told Conway Costigan a short time since, I permitted that as a demonstration of futility. Know, Garlane, once and for all, that you will no longer be allowed to act directly against any adherent of civilization, wherever situate. We of Aresia will not interfere in person with your proposed conquest of the two galaxies as you have planned it, since the stresses and conflicts involved are necessary, and, I may add, sufficient to produce the civilization which must and shall come into being. Therefore, neither will you or any other Edorian so interfere. You will go back to Edor, and you will stay there. Think you so? Garlane sneered. You, who have been so afraid of us for over two thousand million Tellurian years that you dared not let us even learn of you? So afraid of us? that you dared not take any action to avert the destruction of any one of your budding civilizations upon any one of the worlds of either galaxy? So afraid that you dare not, even now, meet me mind to mind, but insist upon the use of this slow and unsatisfactory oral communication between us? Either your thinking is loose, confused, and turbid, which I do not believe to be the case, or you are trying to lull me into believing that you are stupid." Bergenholm's voice was calm, unmoved. "'I do not think that you will go back to Edor. I know it. You, too, as soon as you have become informed upon certain matters, will know it. You protest against the use of spoken language because it is, as you know, the easiest, simplest, and surest way of preventing you from securing any iota of the knowledge for which you are so desperately searching.' as to a meeting of our two minds, they met fully just before you, operating as Grey Roger, remembered that which your entire race forgot long ago. As a consequence of that meeting, I so learned every line and vibration of your life-pattern as to be able to greet you by your symbol, Garlane of Edor, whereas you know nothing of me save that I am an Aresian, a fact which has been obvious from the first. In an attempt to create a diversion, Garling released the zone of compulsion which he had been holding, but the Aresian took it over so smoothly that no human being within range was conscious of any change. 
It is true that for many cycles of time we concealed our existence from you, Bergenholm went on without a break. Since the reason for that concealment will still further confuse you, I will tell you what it is. Had you Edorians learned of us sooner, you might have been able to forge a weapon of power sufficient to prevent the accomplishment of an end which is now certain. It is true that your operations as low sung of Uyghur were not constrained, as Mithridates of Pontus, as Sulla, Marius, and Nero of Rome, as Hannibal of Carthage, as those self-effacing whites, Alcaxerxes of Greece, and Menocoptes of Egypt, as Genghis Khan, and Attila, and the Kaiser, and Mussolini, and Hitler, and the Tyrant of Asia, you were allowed to do as you pleased. Similar activities upon Rigel IV, Valencia, Palain Seven, and elsewhere were also allowed to proceed without effective opposition. With the appearance of Virgil Sams, however, the time arrived to put an end to your customary pernicious, obstructive, and destructive activities. I, therefore, interposed a barrier between you and those who would otherwise be completely defenseless against you. But why now? Why not thousands of cycles ago? And why Virgil Sams? To answer those questions would be to give you valuable data. You may, too late, be able to answer them yourself. But to continue, you accuse me and all Eresia of cowardice, an evidently muddy and inept thought. Reflect, please, upon the completeness of your failure in the affair of Roger's planetoid, upon the fact that you have accomplished nothing whatever since that time, upon the situation in which you now find yourself. Even though the trend of thought in your race is basically materialistic and mechanistic, and you belittle ours as being philosophic and impractical, you found, much to your surprise, that your most destructive physical agencies are not able to affect even this form of flesh which I am now energizing, to say nothing of affecting the reality which is I. If this episode is the result of the customary thinking of the second-in-command of Edor's innermost circle, but no, my visualization cannot be that badly at fault. Overconfidence, the tyrant's innate proclivity to underestimate an opponent, these things have put you into a false position. But I greatly fear that they will not operate to do so in any really important future affair. Rest assured that they will not, Garlane snarled. It may not be exactly cowardice. It is, however, something closely akin. If you could have acted effectively against us at any time in the past, you would have done so. If you could act effectively against us now, you would be acting, not talking. That is elementary, self-evidently true, so true that you have not tried to deny it, nor would you expect me to believe you if you did. Cold black eyes stared level into icy eyes of Norwegian blue. Deny it? No. I am glad, however, that you use the word effectively instead of openly, for we have been acting effectively against you ever since these newly formed planets cooled sufficiently to permit the development of intelligent life. What? You have? How? That, too, you will learn, too late. I have now said all I intend to say. I will give you no more information. Since you already know that there are more adult Aresians than there are Edorians, so that at least one of us can devote his full attention to blocking the direct effort of any one of you, it is clear to you that it makes no difference to me whether you elect to go or to stay. 
I can and I will remain here as long as you do. I can and I will accompany you whenever you venture out of the volume of space protected by a Dorian screen, wherever you go. The election is yours." Garlane disappeared. So did the Eresian, instantaneously. Dr. Nels Bergenholm, however, remained. Turning, he resumed his work where he had left off, knowing exactly what he had been doing and exactly what he was going to do to finish it. He released the zone of compulsion, which he had been holding upon every human being within sight or hearing, so dexterously that no one suspected, then or ever, that anything out of the ordinary had happened. He knew these things and did these things, in spite of the fact that the form of flesh which his fellows of the Triplanetary Service knew as Nels Bergenholm was then being energized, not by the stupendously powerful mind of Drowley the Moulder, but by an Eresian child too young to be of any use in that which was about to occur. Eresia was ready. Every Eresian mind capable of adult or of even near-adult thinking was poised to act when the moment of action should come. They were not, however, tense. While not in any sense routine, that which they were about to do had been foreseen for many cycles of time. They knew exactly what they were going to do, and exactly how to do it. They waited. My visualization is not entirely clear concerning the succession of events stemming from the fact that the fusion of which Drowley is a part did not destroy Garlane of Edor while he was energizing as Grey Roger. A young watchman, Euconidor by symbol, thought into the assembled mind. May I take a moment of this idle time in which to spread my visualization for enlargement and instruction? You may, youth. The elders of Aresia, the mightiest intellects of that tremendously powerful race, fused their several minds into one mind and gave approval. That will be time well spent. Think on. Separated from the other Edorians by intergalactic distance as he then was, Garlane could have been isolated and could have been destroyed, the youth pointed out as he somewhat diffidently spread his visualization in the public mind. Since it is axiomatic that his destruction would have weakened Edor somewhat, and to that extent would have helped us, it is evident that some greater advantage will accrue from allowing him to live. Some points are clear enough, that Garlane and his fellows will believe that the Eresian fusion could not kill him, since it did not that the Edorians, contemptuous of our powers, and thinking us vastly their inferiors, will not be driven to develop such things as atomic-energy-powered mechanical screens against third-level thought until such a time as it will be too late for even those devices to save their race from extinction. That they will, in all probability, never even suspect that the galactic patrol, which is so soon to come into being, will in fact be the prime operator in that extinction. It is not clear, however, in view of the above facts, why it has now become necessary for us to slay one Edorian upon Edor. Nor can I formulate or visualize with any clarity the techniques to be employed in the final wiping out of the race. I lack certain fundamental data concerning events which occurred and conditions which obtained many, many cycles before my birth. I am unable to believe that my perception and memory could have been so imperfect. 
Can it be that none of that basic data is or ever has been available? That youth is the fact. While your visualization of the future is, of course, not as detailed nor as accurate as it will be after more cycles of labor, your background of knowledge is as complete as that of any other of our number. I see. Eukonidor gave the mental equivalent of a nod of complete understanding. It is necessary, and the death of a lesser Edorian, a watchman, will be sufficient. Nor will it be either surprising or alarming to Edor's innermost circle that the integrated total mind of Eresia should be able to kill such a relatively feeble entity. I see. Then silence, and waiting. Minutes, or days, or weeks, who can tell? What does time mean to any Eresian? Then Drownley arrived, arrived in the instant of his leaving the hill. What matters even intergalactic distance to the speed of thought? He fused his mind with those of the three other molders of civilization. The massed and united mind of Eresia, poised and ready, awaiting only his coming, launched itself through space. That tremendous, that theretofore unknown concentration of mental force, arrived at Edor's outer screen in practically the same instant as did the entity that was Garlane. The Edorian, however, went through without opposition. The Eresians did not. Some two thousand million years ago, when the coalescence occurred, the event which was to make each of the two interpassing galaxies teem with planets, the Eresians were already an ancient race. So ancient, that they were even then independent of the chance formation of planets. The Adorians, it is believed, were older still. The Eresians were native to this, our normal space-time continuum. The Adorians were not. Edor was, and is, huge, dense, and hot. Its atmosphere is not air, as we of small, green terra know air but is a noxious mixture of gaseous substances known to mankind only in chemical laboratories. Its hydrosphere, while it does contain some water, is a poisonous, stinking, foully corrosive, slimy, and sludgy liquid. And the Edorians were as different from any people we know as Edor is different from the planets indigenous to our space and time. They were, to our senses, utterly monstrous almost incomprehensible. They were amorphous, amoeboid, sexless. Not androgynous or parthenogenic, but absolutely sexless, with a sexlessness unknown in any earthly form of life higher than the yeasts. Thus they were, to all intents and purposes, and except for death by violence, immortal. For each one, after having lived for hundreds of thousands of Tellurian years, and having reached its capacity to live and to learn, simply divided into two new individuals, each of which, in addition to possessing in full its parents' mind and memories and knowledges, had also a brand new zest and a greatly increased capacity. And since life was, there had been competition. Competition for power. Knowledge was worthwhile only in so far as it contributed to power. Warfare began, and aged, and continued. The appallingly efficient warfare possible only to such entities as those. Their minds, already immensely powerful, grew stronger and stronger under the stresses of internecine struggle. 
but peace was not even thought of. Strife continued, at higher and even higher levels of violence, until two facts became apparent. First, that every Adorian who could be killed by physical violence had already died, that the survivors had developed such tremendous powers of mind, such complete mastery of things physical as well as mental, that they could not be slain by physical force. Second, that during the ages through which they had been devoting their every effort to mutual extermination, their sun had begun markedly to cool, that their planet would very soon become so cold that it would be impossible for them ever again to live their normal physical lives. Thus there came about an armistice. The Adorians worked together, not without friction, in the development of mechanisms by the use of which they moved their planet across light-years of space to a younger, hotter sun. Then, Edor once more at its hot and reeking norm, battle was resumed. Mental battle this time, that went on for more than a hundred thousand Edorian years, during the last ten thousand of which not a single Edorian died. Realizing the futility of such unproductive endeavor, the relatively few survivors made a peace of sorts. Since each had an utterly insatiable lust for power, and since it had become clear that they could neither conquer nor kill each other, they would combine forces and conquer enough planets, enough galaxies, so that each Adorian could have as much power and authority as he could possibly handle. What matter that there was not that many planets in their native space? There were other spaces, an infinite number of them, some of which, it was mathematically certain, would contain millions upon millions of planets instead of only two or three. By mind and by machine they surveyed the neighboring continua. They developed the hyperspatial tube and the inertialist drive. They drove their planet, spaceship-wise, through space after space after space. And thus, shortly after the coalescence began, Edor came into our space-time. And here, because of the multitudes of planets already existing and the untold millions more about to come into existence, it stayed. Here was what they had wanted since their beginnings. Here were planets enough, here were fields enough for the exercise of power, to sate even the insatiable. There was no longer any need for them to fight each other. They could now cooperate wholeheartedly, as long as each was getting more, and more, and more. And Philosor, a young Eresian, his mind roaming eagerly abroad as was its wont, made first contact with the Adorians in this space. Inoffensive, naive, innocent, he was surprised beyond measure at their reception of his friendly greeting. But in the instant before closing his mind to their vicious attacks, he learned the foregoing facts concerning them. The fused mind of the elders of Aresia, however, was not surprised. The Aresians, while not as mechanistic as their opponents, and innately peaceful as well, were far ahead of them in the pure science of the mind. The elders had long known of the Adorians and of their lustful wanderings through plenum after plenum. Their visualizations of the cosmic all had long since forecast, with dreadful certainty, the invasion which had now occurred. They had long known what they would have to do. They did it. So insidiously as to set up no opposition, they entered the Adorians' minds and sealed off all knowledge of Aresia. 
they withdrew tracelessly. They did not have such data, it is true, but no more could be obtained at that time. If any one of those touchy, suspicious minds had been given any cause for alarm, any focal point of doubt, they would have had time in which to develop mechanisms able to force the Eresians out of this space before a weapon to destroy the Adorians, the as yet incompletely designed Galactic Patrol, could be forged. The Eresians could, then even, have slain by mental force alone all the Adorians except the All-Highest and his innermost circle, safe within their then impenetrable shield. But as long as they could not make a clean sweep, they could not attack, then. Be it observed that the Eresians were not fighting for themselves. As individuals or as a race, they had nothing to fear. Even less than the Adorians could they be killed by any possible application of physical force. Past masters of mental science, they knew that no possible concentration of Adorian mental force could kill any one of them. And if they were to be forced out of normal space, what matter? To such mentalities as theirs, any given space would serve as well as any other. No, they were fighting for an ideal, for the peaceful, harmonious, liberty-loving civilization which they had envisaged as developing throughout and eventually entirely covering the myriads of planets of two tremendous island universes. Also, they felt a heavy weight of responsibility. Since all these races, existing and yet to appear, had sprung from and would spring from the Eresian life-spores which permeated this particular space, they all were and would be, at bottom, Eresian. It was starkly unthinkable that Eresia would leave them to the eternal dominance of such a rapacious, such a tyrannical, such a hellishly insatiable breed of monsters. Therefore the Eresians fought efficiently, if insidiously. They did not, they could not, interfere openly with Edor's ruthless conquest of world after world, with Edor's ruthless smashing of civilization after civilization. They did, however, see to it, by selective matings and the establishment of bloodlines upon numberless planets, that the trend of the level of intelligence was definitely and steadily upward. Four molders of civilization, Drownley, Cridigan, Nidanalor and Brolintine, who in fusion formed the mentor of Aresia, who was to become known to every wearer of civilization's lens, were individually responsible for the Aresian program of development upon the four planets of Tellus, Rigel IV, Valantia, and Palane VII. Drownley established upon Tellus two principal lines of blood. In unbroken male line of descent, the Kinesons went back to long before the dawn of even mythical Tellurian history. Conexa of Atlantis, daughter of one Kinnison and the sister of another, is the first of the blood to be named in these annals. But the line was then already old. So was the other line, characterized throughout its tremendous length, male and female, by peculiarly spectacular red-bronze-auburn hair and equally striking, gold-flecked, tawny eyes. Nor did these strains mix. Drowney had made it psychologically impossible for them to mix until the penultimate stage of development should have been reached. While that stage was still in the future, 
Virgil Sams appeared, and all Aresia knew that the time had come to engage the Adorians openly, mind to mind. Garlane Roger was curbed, savagely and sharply. Every Adorian, wherever he was working, found his every line of endeavor solidly blocked. Garlane, as has been intimated, constructed a supposedly irresistible weapon and attacked his Aresian blocker, with results already told. At that failure, Garlane knew that there was something terribly amiss, that it had been amiss for over two thousand million Tellurian years. Really alarmed for the first time in his long life, he flashed back to Edor, to warn his fellows and to make counsel with them as to what should be done. And the massed and integrated force of all Aresia was only an instant behind him. Aresia struck Edor's outermost screen and in the instant of impact that screen went down. And then, instantaneously and all unperceived by the planet's defenders, the Aresian forces split. The elders, including all the molders, seized the Adorian who had been handling that screen, threw him around an impenetrable net of force, yanked him out into intergalactic space. Then, driving in resistlessly, they turned the luckless white inside out, and before the victim died under their poignant probings, the elders of Aresia learned everything that the Adorian and all of his ancestors had ever known. They then withdrew to Aresia, leaving their younger, weaker, partially developed fellows to do whatever they could against the mighty Edor. Whether the attack of these lesser forces would be stopped at the second, the third, the fourth, or the innermost screen, whether they would reach the planet itself and perhaps do some actual damage before being driven off was immaterial. Edor must be allowed and would be allowed to repel that invasion with ease. For cycles to come, the Edorians must and would believe that they had nothing really to fear from Aresia. The real battle, however, had been won. The Aresian visualizations could now be extended to portray every essential element of the climactic conflict which was eventually to come. It was no cheerful conclusion at which the Aresians arrived, since their visualizations all agreed in showing that the only possible method of wiping out the Adorians would also of necessity end their own usefulness as guardians of civilization. Such an outcome having been shown necessary, however, the Aresians accepted it and worked toward it unhesitatingly. End of chapter 1